A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Isaiah 42, verse 3. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please proceed. This prophecy of Isaiah is certainly a prophecy about Jesus. Um, we know that because throughout the book of Isaiah, when um, the, the chief image that God gives to Isaiah in describing Jesus 500 years before he would actually come is the figure of a servant. And chapter 42 begins with the enunciation of what the servant will do. And the not breaking a bruised reed is among the things that he will do. And this promise of Isaiah 42 verse 3 um, I think it's just one of the tenderest, most sweet promises in all of the Bible. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. Two wonderful, very poetic and concrete images for compassion and gentleness that characterizes God's dealing with his people. We, of course, are the bruised reed, in case you missed that. Um, We are the... um, the faintly burning wick, or as the uh, King James so memorably put it, the smoking flax. (coughs) And the Lord has shown his kindness to us. So I just want to unpack some of the details of this figure because there's so much in it. Um, The first is to ask the question, well, what's the bruise? What's the bruise? The bruise is the blue stain of sin that was imprinted on human nature when Adam rebelled against God. The human nature itself is bruised, is a crippled version of what it was by God's initial design. The bruise is the stain that each of our own souls carries, not only inherited from the sin of Adam, um, but that we've added to from our own sins. It's the case as the, you know, you can't read more than a page in the Bible without realizing that our sins are offensive to God. But it's also the case that our sins hurt ourselves. Like it actually bru- it actually wounds us as well. And um, Christianity is not therapy, but the gospel is therapeutic. It actually does have in mind our well-being and our health. The bruise is also uh, just the general weakness um, and malady of our minds and of our bodies that result from this, the inheritance of these sins. So we are all of us bruised. And the promise is, a bruised reed he will not break. God does not desire to punish us. Let me say that again. God does not desire to punish us. He doesn't desire to break us. He wants to make us well. Right? The, the, the promise is sort of, um, it's kind of British, I suppose. Well, it's probably more than just British. But to say something by great understatement. Right? Not only does he not want to break the bruise, he wants to make it well. To heal the bruise, not inflict further damage. And I think that's why... God gives this image to Isaiah in a sort of a double form, kind of moving on from the picture of a reed. Then we get the picture of a faintly burning wick. Now, in um, light switch society, we probably the image might not be immediately intuitive. Um, the ancient world, before um, you know, before electricity and before gaslighting, um, and in the Middle East before candles, uh, everywhere. If you're an archaeologist, you find hundreds and thousands, millions of these little oil lamps, these little pinch pots which would have oil in them and a wick. And when the wick, when the flame was getting low, it just meant that the oil was going out. Um, I imagine some of you might have one of those old tornado burners, like the kerosene, some of you have those old kerosene lamps. Um, Same thing, right? When the the flame's going down, you mean it's almost out of oil. That's the figure. 
that when a lamp is almost out of oil, God will not quench it up. To tease out that image, though Adam once radiated with the image of God. I think if we saw pre-fallen Adam, we would fall down before him like we see saints falling down in front of angels in Revelation. Like, oh my gosh, what is this glory? But then through his disobedience, that likeness of God, the image of God, it wasn't entirely erased, but it was so badly diminished that if Adam began his life as an oil lamp that was full, he ended his life as an oil lamp that was almost empty. The glory of God rapidly and greatly diminished. I think one of the ways we account for the long life of the first patriarchs in Genesis is that decay of the glory of God, that God's image in them meant they lived these crazy number of years that science would say is impossible, but science wasn't there. <laughs> um, the glory of God diminished in Adam and his descendants. Just like Adam, the people of God, Israel, who we see called forth in the New Testament, were called forth with such promise, such a promising beginning, this super faithful guy, Abraham, these amazing promises. The glory of God seems to be sort of really shining in that, that first account. And very quickly, we see God's people, the descendants of Abraham, rebelling just like Adam, disobeying just like Adam, and the glory of God diminishing in his people. The, the people who are supposed to be a city on a hill are actually bringing shame to God's name in the eyes of the nations. That's what the prophets prophesy. Think of the 15, actually since um, Abraham, the 2,000 years between Abraham and John the Baptist. It's like a full lamp, just diminishing. And then you read through the book of Kings, and it's just painful reading, like just getting worse and worse, and the oil of the glory of God just becoming so faint till they're just an unrecognizable uh, as sort of a distinct people. The lamp was reduced to a faint burning. So what does God do in the face of these diminishments? Adam's glory decaying, Israel not, not living up to its promising beginning. Does he cut ties, wash his hands, move on? No, that's the promise. A, a, a faint wick, wick, he will not quench. A faintly burning wick, he will not quench. He doesn't cut ties. He actually sends his son, as we celebrated on Christmas, to take on Adam's flesh and to heal it from the inside out. So the incarnation is sort of the welding of human nature and divine nature in Jesus and the baptism of Jesus, um, which I think is probably one of the most mysterious events in the Gospels. I've, I've read a lot of books on the baptism, not a lot, I've read a handful of books on the baptism of Jesus, um, and I've read the best scholarship that's out there, and I'm like, okay, so we really still don't know. After 2,000 years of Christians thinking, what was the meaning of the baptism of Jesus? We're still kind of figuring this one out. Well, I hope maybe in the next couple thousand years, the Lord might kind of reveal to us what the mystery is fully contains. Um, but among the things that it does, we know that it does contain, is that it was the consecrating of our nature. Right? He took on our nature in the incarnation, but then he consecrated it. He dedicated it to God, showing that humans once again, or actually in a real way, I should say for the first time, can be vessels of the Holy Spirit. Because even Adam before the fall, wasn't a vessel of the Holy Spirit. He was godly. He was radiant with God's glory. But he wasn't a vessel of the Holy Spirit because God and man hadn't been joined yet. That wasn't until Jesus came. So when we see the Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove and John the Baptist getting the privilege to see that happen, um, what we're seeing is that humans can now contain God. And if that sounds like an oxymoron, it should. Right? But of course, even the heavens don't contain God. So the fact that he fits inside a human being uh, is not any further surprise. 
Humans can now be a vessel of the Holy Spirit. And in doing this, God refills the lamp of Adam, human nature generally, and the lamp of Israel. When, Old Testament trivia quiz, when, everyone's like, uh-oh. <laughs> when did the Jewish people cross the Jordan River? Someone's got to know that. Come on, shout it out. Yeah, when? In what event? What, what happened? The moment, like, when did the Jewish people cross the Jordan River? So they, they were led out of the Red Sea, out of Egypt. When did they cross the Jordan River? When they went to the Promised Land. That's right. So where the very place Jesus is standing is symbolic for Jewish people, right? It's like, I mean, we have symbolic places here. If you do something in front of the Supreme Court in D.C., that's a symbolic place to do something. You're trying to communicate something, right? Jesus is getting baptized in the very place, like within a few miles probably, of where the Jewish people crossed over that land to claim it as the promised land and to take it from the wicked Philistines. So Jesus is actually showing that Israel is getting a reboot, right? He himself, once upon a time, a Jewish person, Jewish people, crossed the Jordan River, and it was full of promise, and they got corrupted and they fell for the idols of the surrounding nations. Now the Jewish person, the Adam, right, the, the new Israel is coming into the Jordan and is bringing forth the promised land, a reboot, no longer to be organized by the law of Moses, the law of a letter, but organized in himself. Then Jesus is the new Moses, right? The new constitution for the people of God. It's again, understatement. The prophecy is, well, God's not going to quench the wick. He doesn't just not quench it. He refills the lamp till it's overflowing. Like that wonderful line at the end of Psalm 23. um, You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Human nature gets refilled. Israel gets refilled in Christ. So that once more, the people of God, which we now call the church, right? The reconstitution is now made up of not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles together, can once again be a light to the nations to fulfill the promise that ran dry under the old covenant. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. The, um, where this all comes home to roost is what God has shown to be true about himself generally in the history of his dealings with us in the past is still true of him in his particular dealings with each of our lives, right? He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. If he wouldn't quench the, burning, the faint wick then, he's not going to quench the faint wick now. Um, each of us, when you came to faith, when you were baptized uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's like you got the, your, your, your lamp full up with oil. And it's the hope of every Christian that that growth in the Lord would just continue like this. And it's the discouraging fact of almost every Christian life, including my own, that it's like, yeah, here we go. And the oil kind of dries up and get kind of distracted by worldly things and faith kind of wavers and I'm not sure if I believe that and what am I doing and whether it's with the mind or just with actions, right? Um, And then when we check in with ourselves, it's like, man, the oil lamp feels dry. And and if we look kind of carefully at our lives with Christian self-examination, often the Holy Spirit will show that it was some um, sequence of ill-met trials, grumbling, abundance of fleshly comforts, maybe acquiescing to sins that we thought were small, that sort of leaked out that oil from the lamp. If, um, If running out of oil and a faintly burning wick sort of hits home for any of you this morning, you're like, oh, yeah. Uh, that feels like the description of my heart. Um, 
take courage from the words of Scripture this morning. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He's not like, oh, you didn't keep up the supply of oil, right? He's like, he, his, the stance of Jesus shown eternally through the picture of the cross is, he's like, no, come, let me give you more oil. Right? He wants to refill the lamp. <coughs> if we just turn to him with softness, with a soft heart, say, Lord, I, I, I wasted the oil again. Can you give me another chance? He will not quench a faintly burning wick. He will faithfully bring forth justice. The word justice there in the Old Testament is one of those rich Old Testament words that doesn't just mean sort of like, okay, sentence is just. It means like everything being set right and well organized and clear. Right? If we turn to him, he will fill us again with new faith, with restored faith, with oil and, and vigor to burn, um, extending the metaphor, to burn brightly with the knowledge and relationship with him. And, and that's, part of that means things will get set right again. And that he, he's not just the God of second chances, but the God of, how many chances does he tell us to give each other? 70 times seven, right? Meaning, stop counting, they'll keep going, right? Same thing with himself. So I think um, one of the unfortunate transferences almost all of us have when we, in getting to know God, is thinking of him as the sort of stern, exacting, punitive father, which he's not. Jesus shows us the Father, and Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly of heart, confirming in reality what Isaiah prophesied, right? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And so um, I hope that the Holy Spirit speaks to you through this prophecy, um, through our communion today, to, to teach you a little bit more about the gentleness of God, his tenderness. What a tender... I mean, if a lamp kept going out on me, Nothing can be in the trash, right? That's not what God does. Right? Infinitely kind and merciful is he. Amen.